Hello and welcome to The Marezine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction curated and predominantly narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. Algernon Blackwood published The Empty House and Other Ghost Stories in 1906, from which all of these stories come. It was the first in what was to be a very extensive catalog of novels and short fiction collections. He wrote so much material, in fact, that I could devote a podcast solely to his work, and it would take years to get through it all, provided I was simply doing an hour a week. This is week two of Jim's Shorthouse January, and for these next three weeks we'll be exploring an episode in Jim's life that sees him fully in command and acting on his surroundings as opposed to last week's story, where he was just an unwitting observer of the paranormal. It's difficult to tell if the Jim Shorthouse stories were meant to be connected, or even about the same person, but while there's no real continuity, there are no inconsistencies either. There's a very nice article over at Brom Bones Books by Tim Prazel, at least that's how I think you pronounce his name, I'm sorry Tim if I mangled it, that puts them into a rough timeline. And that's how I decided how to order the stories this month. Through the course of the four stories, you can see Mr. Shorthouse mature from mere psychic observer to full-fledged ghost detective. This one is also set in New York, which fits it neatly in with the case of eavesdropping. You can imagine it taking place some years later, after Jim has firmly established himself in the States. I do want to talk about what may become a glaring elephant in the room as the story goes on. I haven't yet read thoroughly about Algernon Blackwood, so the jury's still out on this, but this particular story has a rather rampant bout of anti-Semitism in it. It seems to be more for effect than Blackwood's actual opinion, and there's no evidence that I have found that he harbors any personal prejudices of any sort. But as I said, I'm still researching the man. I removed a lot of it from the narration and left in the bits that served the story, including dialogue. I'll address this more next week. This grappling with the work is a theme we'll no doubt see over and over on the Marazine, and if you're a regular listener, you already know by now I feel it's important to recognize and confront these flaws in either the people or the culture in what are otherwise brilliant pieces of fiction. That's the only way we learn and overcome. In this case, I think it's less a flaw in the man and more a shorthand of the culture, but we'll talk about this next week. For now, Let's just dive into this first part of Jim's latest escapade. The Strange Adventures of a Private Secretary in New York By Algernon Blackwood Part 1 It was never quite clear to me how Jim Shorthouse managed to get his private secretaryship, but once he got it, he kept it, and for some years he led a steady life and put money in the savings bank. One morning his employer sent for him into the study, and it was evident to the secretary's trained senses that there was something unusual in the air. Mr. Shorthouse he began, somewhat nervously. I have never yet had the opportunity of observing whether or not you are possessed of personal courage. Shorthouse gasped, but he said nothing. 
he was growing accustomed to the eccentricities of his chief. Shorthouse was a Kentish man. Sidebotham was raised in Chicago. New York was the present place of residence. But, the other continued, with a puff of his very black cigar, I must consider myself a poor judge of human nature in future, if it is not one of your strongest qualities. The private secretary made a foolish little bow in modest appreciation of so uncertain a compliment. Mr. Jonas B. Sidebottom watched him narrowly, as the novelists say, before he continued his remarks. I have no doubt that you are a plucky fellow, and... He hesitated, and puffed at his cigar as if his life depended upon its keeping alight. I don't think I'm afraid of anything in particular, sir, except women, interposed the young man, feeling that it was time for him to make an observation of some sort, but still quite in the dark as to his chief's purpose. Humph, he grunted. Well, there are no women in this case, as so far as I know, but there may be other things that... that hurt more. Once a special service of some kind, evidently, was the secretary's reflection. Personal violence, he asked aloud. Possibly, puff. In fact, puff, puff, probably. Shorthouse smelt an increase of salary in the air. It had a stimulating effect. I've had some experience of that article, sir, he said shortly. But I'm ready to undertake anything in reason. I can't say how much reason or unreason there may prove to be in this particular case. It all depends. Mr. Sidebotham got up and locked the door of his study and drew down the blinds of both windows. Then he took a bunch of keys from his pocket and opened a black tin box. He ferreted about among blue and white papers for a few seconds, enveloping himself as he did so in a cloud of blue tobacco smoke. I feel like a detective already, Shorthouse laughed. Speak low, please, returned the other, glancing round the room. We must observe the utmost secrecy. Perhaps you would be kind enough to close the registers, he went on in a still lower voice. Open registers have betrayed conversations before now. Shorthouse began to enter into the spirit of the thing. He tiptoed across the floor and shut the two iron gratings in the wall that in American houses supply hot air and are termed registers. Mr. Sidebotham had meanwhile found the paper he was looking for. He held it in front of him and tapped it once or twice with the back of his right hand as if it were a stage letter and himself the villain of the melodrama. This is a letter from Joel Garvey my old partner, he said at length. You have heard me speak of him. The other bowed. He knew that many years before, Garvey and Sidebotham had been well known in the Chicago financial world. He knew that the amazing rapidity with which they accumulated a fortune had only been surpassed by the amazing rapidity with which they had immediately afterwards disappeared into space. He was further aware, his position afforded facilities, that each partner was still to some extent in the other's power and that each wished most devoutly that the other would die. The sins of his employer's early years did not concern him, however. The man was kind and just, if eccentric, and Shorthouse, being in New York, did not probe to discover more particularly the sources whence his salary was so regularly paid. Moreover, the two men had grown to like each other, and there was a genuine feeling of trust and respect between them. I hope it's a pleasant communication, sir, he said in a low voice. Quite the reverse, returned the other, fingering the paper nervously as he stood in front of the fire. Blackmail, I suppose. Precisely. Mr. Sidebotham's cigar was not burning well. He struck a match and applied it to the uneven edge. 
and presently his voice spoke through clouds of breathing smoke. There are valuable papers in my possession bearing his signature. I cannot inform you of their nature, but they are extremely valuable to me. They belong, as a matter of fact, to Garvey as much as to me. Only I've got them. I see. Garvey writes that he wants to have his signature removed, wants to cut it out with his own hand. He gives reasons which incline me to consider his request. And you would like me to take him the papers and see that he does it? And bring them back again with you, he whispered, screwing up his eyes into a shrewd grimace. And bring them back again with me, repeated the secretary. I understand perfectly. Shorthouse knew from unfortunate experience more than a little of the horrors of blackmail. The pressure Garvey was bringing to bear upon his old enemy must be exceedingly strong. That was quite clear. At the same time, the commission that was being entrusted to him seemed somewhat quixotic in its nature. He had already enjoyed more than one experience of his employer's eccentricity, and he now caught himself wondering whether the same eccentricity did not sometimes go further than eccentricity. I cannot read the letter to you, Mr. Sidebotham was explaining, but I shall give it into your hands. It will prove that you are my, er, my accredited representative. I shall also ask you not to read the package of papers. The signature in question you will find, of course, on the last page, at the bottom. There was a pause of several minutes, during which the end of the cigar glowed eloquently. Circumstances compel me, he went on at length, almost in a whisper, or I should never do this. But you understand, of course, the thing is a ruse. Cutting out the signature is a mere pretense. It is nothing. What Garvey wants are the papers themselves. The confidence reposed in the private secretary was not misplaced. Shorthouse was as faithful to Mr. Sidebottom as a man ought to be to the wife that loves him. The commission itself seemed very simple. Garvey lived in solitude in the remote part of Long Island. Shorthouse was to take the papers to him, witness the cutting out of the signature, and to be specially on his guard against any attempt, forcible or otherwise, to gain possession of them. It seemed to him a somewhat ludicrous adventure, but he did not know all the facts, and perhaps was not the best judge. The two men talked in low voices for another hour, at the end of which Mr. Sidebotham drew up the blinds, opened the registers, and unlocked the door. Shorthouse rose to go. His pockets were stuffed with papers and his head with instructions, but when he reached the door he hesitated and turned. Well, said his chief. Shorthouse looked him straight in the eye and said nothing. The personal violence, I suppose, said the other. Shorthouse bowed. I have not seen Garvey for twenty years, he said. All I can tell you is that I believe him to be occasionally of unsound mind. I have heard strange rumors. He lives alone, and in his lucid intervals studies chemistry. It was always a hobby of his, but the chances are twenty to one against his attempting violence. I only wished to warn you, in case, I mean, so that you may be on the watch. He handed his secretary a Smith & Wesson revolver as he spoke. Shorthouse slipped it into his hip pocket and went out of the room. A drizzling cold rain was falling on fields covered with half-melted snow when Shorthouse stood, late in the afternoon, on the platform of the lonely little Long Island station and watched the train he had just left vanish into the distance. It was a bleak country that Joel Garvey Esquire, formerly of Chicago, had chosen for his residence. 
and on this particular afternoon it presented a more than usually dismal appearance. An expanse of flat fields covered with dirty snow stretched away on all sides till the sky dropped down to meet them. Only occasional farm buildings broke the monotony, and the road wound along muddy lanes and beneath dripping trees swathed in the cold, raw fog that swept in like a pall of the dead from the sea. It was six miles from the station to Garvey's house, and the driver of the rickety buggy Shorthouse had found at the station was not communicative. Between the dreary landscape and the drearier driver, he fell back upon his own thoughts, which, but for the spice of adventure that was promised, would themselves have been even drearier than either. He made up his mind that he would waste no time over the transaction. The moment the signature was cut out, he would pack up and be off. The last train back to Brooklyn was 7.15, and he would have to walk the six miles of mud and snow, for the driver of the buggy had refused point-blank to wait for him. For purposes of safety, Shorthouse had done what he flattered himself was rather a clever thing. He had made up a second packet of papers, identical in outside appearance with the first. The inscription, the blue envelope, the red elastic band, and even a blot in the lower left-hand corner had been exactly reproduced. Inside, of course, were only sheets of blank paper. It was his intention to change the packets and to let Garvey see him put the sham one into the bag. In case of violence, the bag would be the point of attack, and he intended to lock it and throw away the key. Before it could be forced open and the deception discovered, there would be time to increase his chances of escape with the real packet. It was five o'clock when the silent Jehu pulled up in front of a half-broken gate and pointed with his whip to a house that stood in its own grounds among trees and was just visible in the gathering gloom. Shorthouse told him to drive up to the front door, but the man refused. I'm running no risks, he said. I've got a family. This cryptic remark was not encouraging, but Shorthouse did not pause to decipher it. He paid the man, and then pushed open the rickety old gate swinging on a single hinge and proceeded to walk up the drive that lay dark between close-standing trees. The house soon came into full view. It was tall and square, and had once evidently been white. But now the walls were covered with dirty patches, and there were wide yellow streaks where the plaster had fallen away. The windows stared black and uncompromising into the night. The garden was overgrown with weeds and long grass, standing up in ugly patches beneath their burden of wet snow. Complete silence reigned over all. There was not a sign of life, not even a dog barked. Only in the distance the wheels of the retreating carriage could be heard growing fainter and fainter. As he stood in the porch, between pillars of rotting wood, listening to the rain dripping from the roof into the puddles of slushy snow, he was conscious of a sensation of utter desertion and loneliness such as he had never before experienced. The forbidding aspect of the house had the immediate effect of lowering his spirits. It might well have been the abode of monsters or demons in a child's wonder tale, creatures that only dared to come out under cover of darkness. He groped for the bell handle, or knocker, and finding neither, he raised his stick and beat a loud tattoo on the door. The sound echoed away in an empty space on the other side, and the wind moaned past him between the pillars, as if startled at his audacity. But there was no sound of approaching footsteps, and no one came to open the door. Again he beat a tattoo, louder and longer than the first one, 
and having done so, waited with his back to the house and stared across the unkempt garden into the fast-gathering shadows. He turned suddenly and saw that the door was standing ajar. It had been quietly opened, and a pair of eyes were peering at him round the edge. There was no light in the hall beyond, and he could only just make out the shape of a dim human face. Does Mr. Garvey live here? he asked in a firm voice. Who are you? came in a man's tones. I'm Mr. Sidebottom's private secretary. I wish to see Mr. Garvey on important business. Are you expected? I suppose so, he said impatiently, thrusting a card through the opening. Please take my name to him at once, and say I come from Mr. Sidebottom on the matter Mr. Garvey wrote about. The man took the card, and the face vanished into the darkness, leaving Shorthouse standing in the cold porch with mingled feelings of impatience and dismay. The door, he now noticed for the first time, was on a chain and could not open more than a few inches, but it was the manner of his reception that caused uneasy reflections to stir within him, reflections that continued for some minutes before they were interrupted by the sound of approaching footsteps and the flicker of a light in the hall. The next instant the chain fell with a rattle, and gripping his bag tightly, he walked into a large, ill-smelling hall of which he could only just see the ceiling. There was no light but the nickering taper held by the man, and by its uncertain glimmer, Shorthouse turned to examine him. He saw an undersized man of middle age with brilliant, shifting eyes and a curling black beard. His shoulders were bent, and as he watched him replacing the chain, he saw that he wore a peculiar black gown, like a priest's cassock reaching to the feet. It was altogether a lugubrious figure of a man, sinister and funereal, yet it seemed in perfect harmony with the general character of its surroundings. The hall was devoid of furniture of any kind, and against the dingy walls stood rows of old picture frames, empty and disordered, and odd-looking bits of woodwork that appeared doubly fantastic as their shadows danced queerly over the floor in the shifting light. If you'll come this way, Mr. Garvey will see you presently, said the man gruffly, crossing the floor and shielding the taper with a bony hand. He never once raised his eyes above the level of the visitor's waistcoat, and to Shorthouse he somehow suggested a figure from the dead rather than a man of flesh and blood. The hall smelt decidedly ill. All the more surprising, then, was the scene that met his eyes when the man opened the door at the further end and he entered a room brilliantly lit with swinging lamps and furnished with a degree of taste and comfort that amounted to luxury. The walls were lined with handsomely bound books, and armchairs were arranged round a large mahogany desk in the middle of the room. A bright fire burned in the grate, and neatly framed photographs of men and women stood on the mantelpiece on either side of an elaborately carved clock. French windows that opened like doors were partially concealed by warm red curtains, and on a sideboard against the wall stood decanters and glasses, with several boxes of cigars piled on top of one another. There was a pleasant odor of tobacco about the room. Indeed, it was in such glowing contrast to the chilly poverty of the hall that Shorthouse already was conscious of a distinct rise in the thermometer of his spirits. Then he turned and saw the man standing in the doorway with his eyes fixed upon him, somewhere about the middle button of his waistcoat. He presented a strangely repulsive appearance that somehow could not be attributed to any particular detail, and the secretary associated him in his mind with a monstrous black bird of prey more than anything else. My time is short, he said abruptly. 
I hope Mr. Garvey will not keep me waiting. A strange flicker of a smile appeared on the man's ugly face and vanished as quickly as it came. He made a sort of deprecating bow by way of reply. Then he blew out the taper and went out, closing the door noiselessly behind him. Shorthouse was alone. He felt relieved. There was an air of obsequious insolence about the old man that was very offensive. He began to take note of his surroundings. He was evidently in the library of the house, for the walls were covered with books almost up to the ceiling. There was no room for pictures. Nothing but the shining backs of well-bound volumes looked down upon him. Four brilliant lights hung from the ceiling, and a reading lamp with a polished reflector stood among the disordered masses of papers on the desk. The lamp was not lit, but when Shorthouse put his hand upon it, he found it was warm. The room had evidently only just been vacated. Apart from the testimony of the lamp, however, he had already felt, without being able to give a reason for it, that the room had been occupied a few moments before he entered. The atmosphere over the desk seemed to retain the disturbing influence of a human being, an influence, moreover, so recent that he felt as if the cause of it were still in his immediate neighborhood. It was difficult to realize that he was quite alone in the room and that somebody was not in hiding. The finer counterparts of his senses warned him to act as if he were being observed. He was dimly conscious of a desire to fidget and look round, to keep his eyes in every part of the room at once, and to conduct himself generally as if he were the object of careful human observation. How far he recognized the cause of these sensations it is impossible to say but they were sufficiently marked to prevent his carrying out a strong inclination to get up and make a search of the room. He sat quite still, staring alternately at the backs of the books and at the red curtains, wondering all the time if he was really being watched or if it was only the imagination playing tricks with him. A full quarter of an hour passed, and then twenty rows of volumes suddenly shifted out towards him, and he saw that a door had opened in the wall opposite. The books were only sham backs after all, and when they moved back again with the sliding door, Shorthouse saw the figure of Joel Garvey standing before him. Surprise almost took his breath away. He had expected to see an unpleasant, even a vicious apparition, with the mark of the beast unmistakably upon its face. But he was wholly unprepared for the elderly, tall, fine-looking man who stood in front of him. Well-groomed, refined, vigorous, with a lofty forehead, clear gray eyes, and a hooked nose dominating a clean-shaven mouth and chin of considerable character. A distinguished-looking man altogether. I'm afraid I've kept you waiting, Mr. Shorthouse, he said in a pleasant voice, but with no trace of a smile in the mouth or eyes. But the fact is, you know, I have a mania for chemistry, and just when you were announced, I was at the most critical moment of a problem and was really compelled to bring it to a conclusion. Shorthouse had risen to meet him, but the other motioned him to resume his seat. It was borne in upon him irresistibly that Mr. Joel Garvey, for reasons best known to himself, was deliberately lying, and he could not help wondering at the necessity for such an elaborate misrepresentation. He took off his overcoat and sat down. I've no doubt, too, that the door startled you, Garvey went on, evidently reading something of his guest's feelings in his face. You probably had not suspected it. It leads into my little laboratory. Chemistry is an absorbing study to me, and I spend most of my time there. Mr. Garvey moved up to the armchair on the opposite side of the fireplace and sat down. 
Shorthouse made appropriate answers to these remarks, but his mind was really engaged in taking stock of Mr. Sidebotham's old-time partner. So far, there was no sign of mental irregularity, and there was certainly nothing about him to suggest violent wrongdoing or coarseness of living. On the whole, Mr. Sidebotham's secretary was most pleasantly surprised, and wishing to conclude his business as speedily as possible, he made a motion towards the bag for the purpose of opening it when his companion interrupted him quickly. "'You are Mr. Sidebotham's private secretary, are you not?' he asked. Shorthouse replied that he was. "'Mr. Sidebotham,' he went on to explain, "'has entrusted me with the papers in the case, and I have the honor to return to you your letter of a week ago.' He handed the letter to Garvey, who took it without a word and deliberately placed it in the fire. He was not aware that the secretary was ignorant of its contents, yet his face betrayed no signs of feeling. Shorthouse noticed, however, that his eyes never left the fire until the last morsel had been consumed. Then he looked up and said, You are familiar, then, with the facts of this most peculiar case. Shorthouse saw no reason to confess his ignorance. I have all the papers, Mr. Garvey, he replied, taking them out of the bag, and I should be very glad if we could transact our business as speedily as possible. If you will cut out your signature, I... One moment, please, interrupted the other. I must, before we proceed further, consult some papers in my laboratory. If you will allow me to leave you alone a few minutes for this purpose, we can conclude the whole matter in a very short time. Shorthouse did not approve of this further delay, but he had no option than to acquiesce, and when Garvey had left the room by the private door, he sat and waited with the papers in his hand. The minutes went by, and the other did not return. To pass the time, he thought of taking the false packet from his coat to see that the papers were in order, and the move was indeed almost completed when something, he never knew what, warned him to desist. The feeling again came over him that he was being watched, and he leaned back in his chair with the bag on his knees and waited with considerable impatience for the other's return. For more than twenty minutes he waited, and when at length the door opened and Garvey appeared with profuse apologies for the delay, he saw by the clock that only a few minutes still remained of the time he had allowed himself to catch the last train. Now I am completely at your service, he said pleasantly. You must, of course, know, Mr. Shorthouse, that one cannot be too careful in matters of this kind, especially, he went on, speaking very slowly and impressively, in dealing with a man like my former partner whose mind, as you doubtless may have discovered, is at times very sadly affected. Shorthouse made no reply to this. He felt that the other was watching him as a cat watches a mouse. It is almost a wonder to me, Garvey added, that he is still at large. Unless he has greatly improved, it can hardly be safe for those who are closely associated with him. The other began to feel uncomfortable. Either this was the other side of the story, or it was the first signs of mental irresponsibility. All business matters of importance require the utmost care, in my opinion, Mr. Garvey, he said at length, cautiously. Ah, then as I thought you have had a great deal to put up with from him, Garvey said, with his eyes fixed on his companion's face. And no doubt he is still as bitter against me as he was years ago, when the disease first showed itself? although this last remark was a deliberate question, and the questioner was waiting with fixed eyes for an answer, Shorthouse elected to take no notice of it. Without a word, he pulled the elastic band from the blue envelope with a snap 
and plainly showed his desire to conclude the business as soon as possible. The tendency on the other's part to delay did not suit him at all. But never personal violence, I trust, Mr. Shorthouse, he added. Never. I'm glad to hear it, Garvey said in a sympathetic voice. Very glad to hear it. And now, he went on, if you are ready, we can transact this little matter of business before dinner. It will only take a moment. He drew up a chair to the desk and sat down, taking a pair of scissors from a drawer. His companion approached with the papers in his hand, unfolding them as he came. Garvey at once took them from him, and after turning over a few pages, he stopped and cut out a piece of writing at the bottom of the last sheet but one. Holding it up to him, Shorthouse read the words, Joel Garvey, in faded ink. There, that's my signature, he said, and I've cut it out. It must be nearly twenty years since I wrote it, and now I'm going to burn it. He went to the fire and stooped over to burn the little slip of paper. And while he watched it being consumed, Shorthouse put the real papers in his pocket and slipped the imitation ones into the bag. Garvey turned just in time to see this latter movement. I'm putting the papers back, Shorthouse said quietly. You've done with them, I think. Certainly, he replied, as completely deceived, he saw the blue envelope disappear into the black bag and watched Shorthouse turn the key. They no longer have the slightest interest for me. As he spoke, he moved over to the sideboard, and pouring himself out a small glass of whiskey, asked his visitor if he might do the same for him. But the visitor declined and was already putting on his overcoat when Garvey turned with genuine surprise on his face. You surely are not going back to New York tonight, Mr. Shorthouse, he said in a voice of astonishment. I've just time to catch the 715 if I'm quick. But I never heard of such a thing, Garvey said. Of course I took it for granted that you would stay the night. It's kind of you, said Shorthouse, but really I must return tonight. I never expected to stay. The two men stood facing each other. Garvey pulled out his watch. I'm exceedingly sorry, he said. But upon my word, I took it for granted you would stay. I ought to have said so long ago. I'm such a lonely fellow and so little accustomed to visitors that I fear I forgot my manners altogether. But in any case, Mr. Shorthouse, you cannot catch the 7.15, for it's already after six o'clock and that's the last train tonight. Garvey spoke very quickly, almost eagerly, but his voice sounded genuine. There's time if I walk quickly, said the young man with decision, moving towards the door. He glanced at his watch as he went. Hitherto he had gone by the clock on the mantelpiece. To his dismay, he saw that it was, as his host had said, long after six. The clock was half an hour slow, and he realized at once that it was no longer possible to catch the train. Had the hands of the clock been moved back intentionally? Had he been purposely detained? Unpleasant thoughts flashed into his brain and made him hesitate before taking the next step. His employer's warning rang in his ears. The alternative was six miles along a lonely road in the dark or a night under Garvey's roof. The former seemed a direct invitation to catastrophe, if catastrophe there was planned to be. The latter, well, the choice was certainly small. One thing, however, he realized was plain. He must show neither fear nor hesitancy. My watch must have gained, he observed quietly turning the hands back without looking up. It seems I have certainly missed that train and shall be obliged to throw myself upon your hospitality. 
but believe me, I had no intention of putting you out to any such extent. I'm delighted, the other said. Defer to the judgment of an older man and make yourself comfortable for the night. There's a bitter storm outside, and you don't put me out at all. On the contrary, it's a great pleasure. I have so little contact with the outside world that it's really a godsend to have you. The man's face changed as he spoke. His manner was cordial and sincere. Shorthouse began to feel ashamed of his doubts and to read between the lines of his employer's warning. He took off his coat, and the two men moved to the armchairs beside the fire. You see, Garvey went on in a lowered voice, I understand your hesitancy perfectly. I didn't know Sidebottom all those years without knowing a good deal about him, perhaps more than you do. I've no doubt now he filled your mind with all sorts of nonsense about me. Probably told you that I was the greatest villain unhung, eh? And all that sort of thing. Poor fellow. He was a fine sort before his mind became unhinged. One of his fancies used to be that everybody else was insane, or just about to become insane. Is he still as bad as that? Few men, replied Shorthouse, with the manner of making a great confidence, but entirely refusing to be drawn, go through his experiences and reach his age without entertaining delusions of one kind or another. Perfectly true, said Garvey. Your observation is evidently keen. Very keen indeed, Shorthouse replied, taking his cue neatly. But, of course, there are some things, and here he looked cautiously over his shoulder, there are some things one cannot talk about too circumspectly. I understand perfectly and respect your reserve. There was a little more conversation, and then Garvey got up and excused himself on the plea of superintending the preparation of the bedroom. It's quite an event to have a visitor in the house, and I want to make you as comfortable as possible, he said. Marks will do better for a little supervision. And, he added with a laugh as he stood in the doorway, I want you to carry back a good account to Sidebottom. As I was prepping this first part of what is roughly an hour and a half story, it put me in mind of another excerpt by a famous writer. Dracula's Guest is actually a chapter of the novel which Bram Stoker cut for length. It was published by his widow after his death in a collection of short fiction which included several stories he had written but never published. I wouldn't normally include an excerpt that isn't self-contained, but Dracula is such a part of our cultural consciousness that I don't need to provide any background or context. I simply have to say, it's a Dracula story, and your mind will fill in the rest. Well, here's a Dracula story for you. Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker When we started for our drive, the sun was shining brightly on Munich, and the air was full of the joyousness of early summer. Just as we were about to depart, Herr Delbruck, the maitre d'hôtel of the Quatre Saisons where I was staying, came down bareheaded to the carriage and after wishing me a pleasant drive, said to the coachman, still holding his hand on the handle of the carriage door, Remember, you are back by nightfall. The sky looks bright, but there is a shiver in the north wind that says there may be a sudden storm. But I am sure you will not be late. 
Here he smiled and added, For you know what night it is. Johann answered with an emphatic, Ja, mein Herr, and touching his hat, drove off quickly. When we had cleared the town, I said, after signaling to him to stop, Tell me, Johann, what is tonight? He crossed himself, as he answered laconically, Walpurgis knocked. Then he took out his watch, a great old-fashioned German silver thing as big as a turnip, and looked at it, with his eyebrows gathered together and a little impatient shrug of his shoulders. I realized that this was his way of respectfully protesting against the unnecessary delay, and sank back in the carriage, merely motioning him to proceed. He started off rapidly, as if to make up for lost time. Every now and then the horses seemed to throw up their heads and sniff the air suspiciously. On such occasions I often looked round in alarm. The road was pretty bleak, for we were traversing a sort of high, wind-swept plateau. As we drove, I saw a road that looked but little used, and which seemed to dip through a little winding valley. It looked so inviting that even at the risk of offending him, I called Johann to stop, and when he had pulled up, I told him I would like to drive down that road. He made all sorts of excuses, and frequently crossed himself as he spoke. This somewhat piqued my curiosity, so I asked him various questions. He answered fencingly, and repeatedly looked at his watch in protest. Finally I said, Well, Johann, I want to go down this road. I shall not ask you to come unless you like, but tell me why you do not like to go, that is all I ask. For answer he seemed to throw himself off the box, so quickly did he reach the ground. Then he stretched out his hands appealingly to me, and implored me not to go. There was just enough of English mixed with the German for me to understand the drift of his talk. He seemed always just about to tell me something, the very idea of which evidently frightened him. But each time he pulled himself up, saying as he crossed himself, Walpurgis knocked. I tried to argue with him, but it was difficult to argue with a man when I did not know his language. The advantage certainly rested with him, for although he began to speak in English of a very crude and broken kind, he always got excited and broke into his native tongue, and every time he did so, he looked at his watch. Then the horses became restless and sniffed the air. At this he grew very pale, and looking around in a frightened way, he suddenly jumped forward, took them by the bridles, and led them on some twenty feet. I followed and asked why he had done this. For answer he crossed himself, pointed to the spot we had left, and drew his carriage in the direction of the other road, indicating a cross, and said, first in German, then in English, buried him, him what kills themselves. I remembered the old custom of burying suicides at crossroads. Ah, I see, a suicide. How interesting. But for the life of me I could not make out why the horses were frightened. Whilst we were talking, we heard a sort of sound between a yelp and a bark. It was far away, but the horses got very restless, and it took Johann all his time to quiet them. He was pale, and said, It sounds like a wolf, but yet there are no wolves here now. No, I said, questioning him. Isn't it long since the wolves were so near the city? Long, long, he answered. In the spring and summer. But with the snow, the wolves have been here not so long. Whilst he was petting the horses and trying to quiet them, dark clouds drifted rapidly across the sky. The sunshine passed away, and a breath of cold wind seemed to drift past us. It was only a breath, however, and more in the nature of a warning than a fact, for the sun came out brightly again, 
Johann looked under his lifted hand at the horizon and said, It's a storm of snow. He comes before long time. Then he looked at his watch again, and straightway holding his reins firmly, for the horses were still pawing the ground restlessly and shaking their heads, he climbed to his box as though the time had come for proceeding on our journey. I felt a little obstinate and did not at once get into the carriage. Tell me, I said, about this place where the road leads. And I pointed down. Again he crossed himself and mumbled a prayer, before he answered, It is unholy. What is unholy? I inquired. The village. Then there is a village. No, no, no one lives there hundreds of years. My curiosity was piqued. But you said there was a village. Zevas. Where is it now? Whereupon he burst out into a long story in German and English, so mixed up that I could not quite understand exactly what he said, but roughly I gathered that long ago, hundreds of years, men had died there and been buried in their graves, and sounds were heard under the clay, and when the graves were opened, men and women were found rosy with life, and their mouths red with blood. And so, in haste to save their lives, I and their souls, and here he crossed himself, those who were left fled away to other places, where the living lived, and the dead were dead, and not... not something. He was evidently afraid to speak the last words. As he proceeded with his narration, he grew more and more excited. It seemed as if his imagination had got hold of him, and he ended in a perfect paroxysm of fear, white-faced, perspiring, trembling and looking round him, as if expecting that some dreadful presence would manifest itself there in the bright sunshine on the open plain. Finally, in an agony of desperation, he cried, Valpurgis knocked! and pointed to the carriage for me to get in. All my English blood rose at this, and standing back, I said, You are afraid, Johann. You are afraid. Go home. I shall return alone. The walk will do me good. The carriage door was open. I took from the seat my oak walking stick, which I always carry on my holiday excursions, and closed the door, pointing back to Munich, and said, Go home, Johann. Valpurgis knocked does not concern Englishmen. The horses were now more restive than ever, and Johann was trying to hold them in, while excitedly imploring me not to do anything so foolish. I pitied the poor fellow. He was deeply in earnest, but all the same I could not help laughing. His English was quite gone now. In his anxiety, he had forgotten that his only means of making me understand was to talk my language, so he jabbered away in his native German. It began to be a little tedious. After giving the direction home, I turned to go down the crossroad into the valley. With a despairing gesture, Johann turned his horses toward Munich. I leaned on my stick and looked after him. He went slowly along the road for a while. Then there came over the crest of the hill a man tall and thin. I could see so much in the distance. When he drew near the horses, they began to jump and kick about, then to scream with terror. Johann could not hold them in. They bolted down the road, running away madly. I watched them out of sight, then looked for the stranger, but I found that he too was gone. With a light heart, I turned down the side road through the deepening valley to which Johann had objected. There was not the slightest reason that I could see for his objection and I dare say I tramped for a couple of hours without thinking of time or distance, and certainly without seeing a person or a house. So far as the place was concerned, it was desolation itself. But I did not notice this particularly, 
till, on turning a bend in the road, I came upon a scattered fringe of wood. Then I recognized that I had been impressed unconsciously by the desolation of the region through which I had passed. I sat down to rest myself and began to look around. It struck me that it was considerably colder than it had been at the commencement of my walk. A sort of sighing sound seemed to be around me, with now and then high overhead a sort of muffled roar. Looking upwards, I noticed that great thick clouds were drifting rapidly across the sky from north to south at a great height. There were signs of coming storm in some lofty stratum of the air. I was a little chilly, and thinking that it was the sitting still after the exercise of walking, I resumed my journey. The ground I passed over was now much more picturesque. There were no striking objects that the eye might single out, but in all there was a charm of beauty. I took little heed of time, and it was only when the deepening twilight forced itself upon me that I began to think of how I should find my way home. The brightness of the day had gone. The air was cold, and the drifting of clouds high overhead was more marked. They were accompanied by a sort of faraway rushing sound, through which seemed to come at intervals that mysterious cry which the driver had said came from a wolf. For a while I hesitated. I had said I would see the deserted village, so on I went, and presently came on a wide stretch of open country, shut in by hills all around. Their sides were covered with trees which spread down to the plain, dotting in clumps the gentler slopes and hollows which showed here and there. I followed with my eye the winding of the road, and saw that it curved close to one of the densest of these clumps, and was lost behind it. As I looked, there came a cold shiver in the air, and the snow began to fall. I thought of the miles and miles of bleak country I had passed, and then hurried on to seek the shelter of the wood in front. Darker and darker grew the sky, and faster and heavier fell the snow, till the earth before and around me was a glistening white carpet, the further edge of which was lost in misty vagueness. The road was here but crude, and when on the level its boundaries were not so marked as when it passed through the cuttings, and in a little while I found that I must have strayed from it, for I missed underfoot the hard surface, and my feet sank deeper in the grass and moss. Then the wind grew stronger, and blew with ever-increasing force, till I was fain to run before it. The air became icy cold, and in spite of my exercise I began to suffer. The snow was now falling so thickly and whirling around me in such rapid eddies that I could hardly keep my eyes open. Every now and then the heavens were torn asunder by vivid lightning, and in the flashes I could see ahead of me a great mass of trees, chiefly yew and cypress, all heavily coated with snow. I was soon amongst the shelter of the trees, and there, in comparative silence, I could hear the rush of the wind high overhead. Presently the blackness of the storm had become merged in the darkness of the night. By and by the storm seemed to be passing away. It now only came in fierce puffs or blasts. At such moments, the weird sound of the wolf appeared to be echoed by many similar sounds around me. Now and again, through the black mass of drifting cloud, came a straggling ray of moonlight, which lit up the expanse and showed me that I was at the edge of a dense mass of cypress and yew trees. As the snow had ceased to fall, I walked out from the shelter and began to investigate more closely. It appeared to me that amongst so many old foundations as I had passed, there might still be standing a house in which, though in ruins, I could find some sort of shelter for a while. As I skirted the edge of the copse, I found that a low wall encircled it, and following this, 
I presently found an opening. Here the cypresses formed an alley leading up to a square mass of some kind of building. Just as I caught sight of this, however, the drifting clouds obscured the moon, and I passed up the path in darkness. The wind must have grown colder, for I felt myself shiver as I walked. But there was hope of shelter, and I groped my way blindly on. I stopped, for there was a sudden stillness. The storm had passed, and, perhaps in sympathy with nature's silence, my heart seemed to cease to beat. But this was only momentarily, for suddenly the moonlight broke through the clouds, showing me that I was in a graveyard, and that the square object before me was a great massive tomb of marble, as white as the snow that lay on and all around it. With the moonlight there came a fierce sigh of the storm, which appeared to resume its course with a long, low howl, as of many dogs or wolves. I was awed and shocked, and felt the cold perceptibly grow upon me, till it seemed to grip me by the heart. Then, while the flood of moonlight still fell on the marble tomb, the storm gave further evidence of renewing, as though it was returning on its track. Impelled by some sort of fascination, I approached the sepulchre to see what it was, and why such a thing stood alone in such a place. I walked around it, and read, over the Doric door, in German, Countess Dolingen of Graz, in Styria, sought and found at death, 1801. On the top of the tomb, seemingly driven through the solid marble, for the structure was composed of a few vast blocks of stone, was a great iron spike or stake. On going to the back, I saw, graven in great Russian letters, the dead travel fast. There was something so weird and uncanny about the whole thing that it gave me a turn and made me feel quite faint. I began to wish, for the first time, that I had taken Johann's advice. Here a thought struck me, which came under almost mysterious circumstances and with a terrible shock. This was Walpurgis Night. Walpurgis Night, when, according to the belief of millions of people, the devil was abroad, when the graves were opened and the dead came forth and walked, when all evil things of earth and air and water held revel. This very place the driver had specially shunned. This was the depopulated village of centuries ago. This was where the suicide lay, and this was the place where I was alone, unmanned, shivering with cold in a shroud of snow with a wild storm gathering again upon me. It took all my philosophy, all the religion I had been taught, all my courage not to collapse in a paroxysm of fright. And now a perfect tornado burst upon me. The ground shook as though thousands of horses thundered across it. And this time, the storm bore on its icy wings not snow, but great hailstones, which drove with such violence that they might have come from the thongs of Balearic slingers. Hailstones that beat down leaf and branch and made the shelter of the cypresses of no more avail than though their stems were standing corn. At the first, I had rushed to the nearest tree, but I was soon fain to leave it and seek the only spot that seemed to afford refuge the deep Doric doorway of the marble tomb. There, crouching against the massive bronze door, I gained a certain amount of protection from the beating of the hailstones, for now they only drove against me as they ricocheted from the ground and the side of the marble. As I leaned against the door, it moved slightly and opened inwards. The shelter of even a tomb was welcome in that pitiless tempest, and I was about to enter it when there came a flash of forked lightning that lit up the whole expanse of the heavens. 
in the instant, as I am a living man, I saw, as my eyes were turned into the darkness of the tomb, a beautiful woman, with rounded cheeks and red lips, seemingly sleeping on a bier. As the thunder broke overhead, I was grasped as by the hand of a giant and hurled out into the storm. The whole thing was so sudden that before I could realize the shock, moral as well as physical, I found the hailstones beating me down. At the same time, I had a strange, dominating feeling that I was not alone. I looked towards the tomb. Just then there came another blinding flash, which seemed to strike the iron stake that surmounted the tomb and to pour through to the earth, blasting and crumbling the marble as in a burst of flame. The dead woman rose for a moment of agony while she was lapped in the flame, and her bitter scream of pain was drowned in the thunder crash. The last thing I heard was this mingling of dreadful sound, as again I was seized in the giant grasp and dragged away, while the hailstones beat on me, and the air around seemed reverberant with the howling of wolves. The last sight that I remembered was a vague, white, moving mass, as if all the graves around me had sent out the phantoms of their sheeted dead, and that they were closing in on me through the white cloudiness of the driving hail. Gradually there came a sort of vague beginning of consciousness, then a sense of weariness that was dreadful. For a time I remembered nothing, but slowly my senses returned. My feet seemed positively racked with pain, yet I could not move them. They seemed to be numbed. There was an icy feeling at the back of my neck and all down my spine, and my ears, like my feet, were dead, yet in torment. But there was in my breast a sense of warmth which was by comparison delicious. It was as a nightmare, a physical nightmare, if one may use such an expression, for some heavy weight on my chest made it difficult for me to breathe. This period of semi-lethargy seemed to remain a long time, and as it faded away, I must have slept or swooned. Then came a sort of loathing, like the first stage of seasickness, and a wild desire to be free from something, I knew not what. A vast stillness enveloped me, as though all the world were asleep or dead, only broken by the low panting as of some animal close to me. I felt a warm rasping at my throat, then came a consciousness of the awful truth, which chilled me to the heart and sent the blood surging up through my brain. Some great animal was lying on me and now licking my throat. I feared to stir, for some instinct of prudence bade me lie still but the brute seemed to realize that there was now some change in me, for it raised its head. Through my eyelashes I saw above me the two great flaming eyes of a gigantic wolf. Its sharp white teeth gleamed in the gaping red mouth, and I could feel its hot breath fierce and acrid upon me. For another spell of time I remembered no more. Then I became conscious of a low growl, followed by a yelp, renewed again and again. Then, seemingly very far away, I heard a Hello! Hello! as of many voices calling in unison. Cautiously I raised my head and looked in the direction whence the sound came, but the cemetery blocked my view. The wolf still continued to yelp in a strange way, and a red glare began to move round the grove of cypresses, as though following the sound. As the voices drew closer, the wolf yelped faster and louder. I feared to make either sound or motion. Nearer came the red glow over the white pall which stretched into the darkness around me. 
Then all at once, from beyond the trees, there came at a trot a troop of horsemen bearing torches. The wolf rose from my breast and made for the cemetery. I saw one of the horsemen, soldiers by their caps and their long military cloaks, raise his carbine and take aim. A companion knocked up his arm, and I heard the ball whiz over my head. He had evidently taken my body for that of the wolf. Another sighted the animal as it slunk away, and a shot followed. Then, at a gallop, the troop rode forward, some towards me, others following the wolf as it disappeared amongst the snow-clad cypresses. As they drew nearer, I tried to move, but was powerless, although I could see and hear all that went on around me. Two or three of the soldiers jumped from their horses and knelt beside me. One of them raised my head and placed his hand over my heart. Good news, comrades, he cried. His heart still beats. Then some brandy was poured down my throat. It put vigor into me, and I was able to open my eyes fully and look around. Lights and shadows were moving among the trees, and I heard men call to one another. They drew together, uttering frightened exclamations, and the lights flashed as others came pouring out of the cemetery pell-mell like men possessed. When the further ones came close to us, those who were around me asked them eagerly, Well, have you found him? The reply rang out hurriedly, No, no, come away, quick, quick, this is no place to stay, and on this of all nights. What was it? was the question, asked in all manner of keys. The answer came variously, and all indefinitely, as though the men were moved by some common impulse to speak, yet were restrained by some common fear from giving their thoughts. It, it, indeed, gibbered one, whose wits had plainly given out for the moment. A wolf, and yet not a wolf, another put in shudderingly. No use trying for him without a sacred bullet, a third remarked in a more ordinary manner. Serve us right for coming out on this night. Truly we have earned our thousand marks, were the ejaculations of a fourth. Serve us blood on the broken marble, another said after a pause. So lightning never brought that here. And for him, is he safe? Look at his throat. See, comrades, the wolf has been lying on him and keeping his blood warm. The officer looked at my throat and replied, He is all right. The skin is not pierced. What does it all mean? We should never have found him but for the yelping of the wolf. What became of it? asked the man who was holding up my head, and who seemed the least panic-stricken of the party, for his hands were steady and without tremor. On his sleeve was the chevron of a petty officer. It went to its home, answered the man, whose long face was pallid, and who actually shook with terror as he glanced around him fearfully. There are graves enough there in which it may lie. Come, comrades, come quickly. Let us leave this cursed spot. The officer raised me to a sitting posture as he uttered a word of command. Then several men placed me on a horse. He sprang to the saddle behind me, took me in his arms, gave the word to advance, and, turning our faces away from the cypresses, we rode away in swift military order. As yet my tongue refused its office, and I was perforce silent. I must have fallen asleep for the next thing I remembered was finding myself standing up, supported by a soldier on each side of me. It was almost broad daylight, and to the north a red streak of sunlight was reflected like a path of blood over the waste of snow. The officer was telling the men to say nothing of what they had seen, except that they found an English stranger guarded by a large dog. Dog! That was no dog! cut in the man who had exhibited such fear. I think I know a wolf when I see one. The young officer answered calmly, 
I said a dog. Dog, reiterated the other ironically. It was evident that his courage was rising with the sun, and pointing to me, he said, Look at his throat! Is that the work of a dog, master? Instinctively I raised my hand to my throat, and as I touched it, I cried out in pain. The men crowded round to look, some stooping down from their saddles, and again there came the calm voice of the young officer. A dog, as I said. If aught else were said, we should only be laughed at. I was then mounted behind a trooper, and we rode on into the suburbs of Munich. Here we came across a stray carriage, into which I was lifted, and it was driven off to the Quatre Saison, the young officer accompanying me, whilst the trooper followed with his horse, and the others rode off to their barracks. When we arrived, Herr Delbruck rushed so quickly down the steps to meet me that it was apparent he had been watching within. Taking me by both hands, he solicitously led me in. The officer saluted me and was turning to withdraw when I recognized his purpose and insisted that he should come to my rooms. Over a glass of wine, I warmly thanked him and his brave comrades for saving me. He replied simply that he was more than glad and that Herr Delbruck had at the first taken steps to make all the searching party pleased, at which ambiguous utterance the maitre d'hôtel smiled while the officer pleaded duty and withdrew. But Herr Delbruck, I inquired, how and why was it that the soldiers searched for me? He shrugged his shoulders, as if in depreciation of his own deed, as he replied, I was so fortunate as to obtain leave from the commander of the regiment in which I served to ask for volunteers. But how did you know I was lost? I asked. The driver came hither with the remains of his carriage, which had been upset when the horses ran away. But surely you would not send a search party of soldiers merely on this account. Oh no, he answered. But even before the coachman arrived, I had this telegram from the boyar, whose guest you are and he took from his pocket a telegram which he handed to me, and I read, Bistritz, be careful of my guest. His safety is most precious to me. Should aught happen to him, or if he be missed, spare nothing to find him and ensure his safety. He is English, and therefore adventurous. There are often dangers from snow and wolves and night. Lose not a moment if you suspect harm to him. I answer your zeal with my fortune. Dracula as I held the telegram in my hand, the room seemed to whirl around me. And, if the attentive maitre d'hôtel had not caught me, I think I should have fallen. There was something so strange in all this, something so weird and impossible to imagine, that there grew on me a sense of my being in some way the sport of opposite forces, the mere vague idea of which seemed in a way to paralyze me. I was certainly under some form of mysterious protection. From a distant country had come, in the very nick of time, a message that took me out of the danger of the snow sleep and the jaws of the wolf. That one will be going out to patrons, but I probably won't include it in the omnibus. Although if I do ever record Dracula... I may add it back in to make my version just a little more distinct. Next week, we'll continue Jim's adventure in Long Island and meet some rather nice people. If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. 
or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.